Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, the 8th Annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And the topic for our program today is actually communicating with your healthcare team after treatment, making the most of your visit. This is part two of this series. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it's this collaboration that really has enabled us to reach so many of you on the call today. And we have on the call today over 2,574 people. So we have a lot of people on this call today. And although you can't all see each other, you're all right there on this call. It's amazing. And you come from all over the United States. You come from large cities and small cities. You come from suburban areas as well as rural and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Italy, India, Indonesia, Ireland, Israel, Mexico, Pakistan, Singapore, Spain, Venezuela, and the UK. So you really come from all over the world. And it's a credit to you that you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, I would like to turn your attention for a moment to all the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there are, there's an outline that our speakers have prepared and information about our speakers. There's information about all of the different collaborating organizations with wonderful um, materials about them. Um, and there also is an evaluation form. And I would ask you all to take a moment at the end of our program today and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us what we should offer in the future, what, what programs we should offer. Indeed, today's topic and many of the topics for this particular survivorship series have been selected by all of you, telling us the topics you'd like us to offer. And we have just wonderful uh, speakers on our program today, and um, it's just really um, it's just amazing faculty that we have today. I do want to say that this program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong, and really want to thank them for their support of our program today. Now, I want to start by introducing our first speaker, uh, Dr. Naraj Arora. He is going to provide the survivor perspective, and um, he is a research scientist and program director for the for Patient-Centered Care Research, Outcomes Research Branch, Applied Research Program, the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute. I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Aurora, who's going to pr provide you with a survivor perspective. Dr. Aurora? Thank you, Carolyn. I want to thank you all for inviting me to this workshop. It is, uh, as a cancer survivor, it is a truly a, an honor to speak before an audience of so many fellow patients, survivors, and caregivers. I want to share with you my story and some uh, experiences I've had that have uh, given me uh, a lot of uh, input and insights into how best to communicate with the healthcare delivery team. Halloween 1994 was the scariest day of my life. It was on this day that I was diagnosed with aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was only 24 years old at that time. I had just moved to the United States from India two years ago and at the time of my diagnosis was pursuing a PhD in health systems engineering at the University of Wisconsin. 
One of the greatest pieces of advice I received at the time of my diagnosis came from my mentor, Dr. Gustafson at the university. He told me that I should use my cancer experience as one of the most in-depth internships that I could get in the healthcare industry, and I should take notes on how the quality of cancer care can be improved from the patient's perspective. I took his advice to heart and began maintaining a diary on my positive and negative experiences as a cancer patient. Not only did this advice help me deal with some very intense chemotherapy and radiation treatments that I would go on to receive in the next three years, it also got me passionate on doing research on improving communication between cancer patients, their family members, and health professionals. In the year 2000, almost six years after my diagnosis, I finished my PhD, got married to the love of my life, and moved to Maryland to join the National Cancer Institute as a research scientist. I came here with my mission to improve the quality of care for cancer patients and survivors. My oncologist in Wisconsin at that time encouraged me to live a full and happy life and urged me to not worry too much about my cancer anymore. I was not specifically recommended to have any more follow-up care and was declared to be a success. Unlike many other patients and survivors, I actually was okay with that. I was ready to start a new happy married life. However, once I started working at NCI, I was soon educated about all the different late effects that I could suffer from due to the treatments I had received, something my oncologist never told me about. I have to confess I was worried and even scared. It was at that time that I decided that I needed to get regular follow-up care and uh, try to find a, find a good hematologist that I could see in Maryland. Luckily, I found a good doctor, and she helped me clarify what were some of the late effects that we needed to watch for and what were some that I really did not have to get too stressed about. I realized then that life after cancer treatment was going to be full of uncertainty, and I needed a good healthcare team to help me manage that uncertainty, even if they could not always reduce or eliminate it for me. Unfortunately for me, in 2000, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. Getting treatment for heart disease once again reinforced for me the importance of good communication between patients and their healthcare team. There are a few key things that I have learned over the uh, course of the last 16 years about communicating with the healthcare delivery team that I want to share with you today. One of the things I learned was that most health professionals, especially doctors, are very busy and are constantly scrambling for time to see patients in their office or clinic. While they, for the most part, have the best of intentions to take care of each patient, a lot of things in our system inhibit them from doing so. Second, I also realized that health professionals also live and face with a lot of uncertainty. They are living in a constantly changing world of medical information. And as patients and cancer survivors, we cannot really expect them to be the perfect medical experts that we would ideally like them to be. And finally, I also realized that unless and until health professionals have had direct experience with cancer themselves, they cannot completely know or fully understand everything we go through as cancer patients and survivors. Hence, the biggest lesson I have learned is that we as cancer patients and survivors have to help healthcare professionals in helping us. The key is for us to be good communicators, and I cannot stress on that enough. As a patient, I always prepare myself so that I can get the best out of the brief 8 to 10 minute visit I have with my doctor. Believe me, if we prepare well, 10 minutes can be very productive. I always make a list of questions that I want to ask my doctor, which usually also includes a question on the lines of what else should I know? 
After all, I always don't know all the right questions to ask, but it is okay to ask the doctor to advise you on what else you should be knowing. While I understand that the doctor may not be able to give me more than 8 or 10 minutes of his time, but when he or she is in the room with me, I expect them to give, them, to give me their full attention for those minutes. That is my time with them. If I see that the doctor's mannerism is such that he has one foot in the door, I respectfully invite him to have a seat since I have a few issues to discuss. Also, given how overburdened doctors tend to be, I also make sure that I bring up any issues that are bothering me rather than wait for my doctor to ask me about them. I have realized that often doctors are very good about checking for physical symptoms, but when it comes to psychosocial issues, they often feel that if the patient has any problems, they will bring them up themselves. We as survivors in turn often feel that we do not want to take up the doctor's time for such issues that we do not consider to be medical issues. Very often due to such miscommunication, important problems that we face such as emotional or even sexual functioning issues never get brought up and addressed. And finally, I would like to say that I also used to suffer from the guilty survivor effect. I would go for my annual follow-up care visits and see a lot of sick cancer patients undergoing treatment waiting in the waiting room. I would feel very guilty taking up the doctor's time when she had so many sicker patients to take care of. However, when I was diagnosed with my heart disease three years ago, it once again brought home the message that my health needs are also very real and I need to communicate actively without feeling guilty to have my needs addressed by my healthcare team. If I don't bring up my issues to them, they may never get addressed. I need to be an active communicator. With that, I will close my remarks, and I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to share my experiences. I look forward to hearing from the other speakers and as well as the question and answer session with my fellow survivors and caregivers in the audience. Thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Aurora, for an excellent, really outstanding opening address for this present for this today's workshop, and I really can't thank you enough for really setting the stage for all the other speakers and for everybody on the call as well. So thank you very much. Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Thomas Smith, and Dr. Smith is Medical Director, Thomas Palliative Care Unit, Massey Endowed Professor for Palliative Care Research, Virginia Commonwealth University Massey Cancer Center. Um, and he is going to um, discuss demedicalizing your life, treatment summaries, and coordinating care, getting the right things done. Dr. Smith? Uh, thanks, Carolyn. As you said, I'm mostly a breast cancer doctor, so I take people who are feeling relatively well albeit somewhat stunned at the new diagnosis, and then proposed to these relatively well people chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, often an abrupt transition into menopause, facing your own mortality at a time when you just weren't planning on doing that right yet, and then continued uncertainty during the treatment and for the next years, even if you have a good prognosis cancer. And we completely medicalize people's lives um, complete interruption of their regular lives. We have tests, then more tests, more uncertainty. Try to try to get coordinated care, more uncertainty about your life, more medical uncertainty, more financial uncertainty, more spiritual uncertainty. Then you have more tests, and then you get chemo, and you lose your hair, and you lose your muscles, and you may lose your physical attractiveness compared to what you felt before. Then surgery, and then weight gain, and then radiation, and then more uncertainty and then being thrown into menopause for women or andropause for men. Uh, Portocast, well, should I go to the gym? Is it okay if I go in the pool? Um, more weight gain, eating for comfort since things don't taste right or they may not taste at all. 
And then after six or 12 or more months of complete medicalization that I've done to somebody, we suddenly expect people to get right back to normal, what they were doing before. And as soon as your hair goes back, people think you're right back where you started. And that's work, home, sexuality, religion, little league, etc. right back where you were before. But life is different. You have had a profound growth experience. As one of my wife's minister friends, Reverend Amanda, puts it, she has this charming English accent because she was raised there as a child. She says, well, in our church, we call these events AFGOs, A-F-G-O, another fantastic growth opportunity, AFGO, another fantastic growth opportunity. Of course, one can substitute any F word one chooses, but if you see life as a series of F goes, it all falls into place. So, you can see your cancer as another fantastic growth opportunity and take advantage of it. But first, you have to demedicalize your life. I tell people when they're finishing their treatment that just pretend they're coming back from a foreign country or from 12 weeks in a body cast. It's essential that you recognize that you have changed. The world around hasn't, maybe. You've had this profound experience, which you can share with others, but they really can't understand until they've experienced it themselves. You've had this real growth opportunity. So take advantage of every day. Concentrate on doing what you want rather for some of the time. Take some time for yourself and give yourself a break. Um, that doesn't last forever. You can't use this excuse for most of your life because most people are now cured. Um, exercise, that's the best way to maintain muscle tone during chemotherapy and all sorts of treatment. It's also the best way to maintain bone health, muscle tone, fight depression, and maintain your weight. also helps guard against constipation. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter if it's walking, tai chi, yoga, but try to get in 20 minutes a day, enough to break a sweat most every day, and more if you can. I also tell people to eat a diet with less red meat and less fat and five to nine fruits and vegetables a day, and to keep their weight stable or even lose a few pounds. Get back to your baseline pre-cancer weight. There is accumulating good evidence that this helps with all types of cancers, whether it's breast cancer, colorectal cancer, leukemia, lymphoma even, and it's good prevention for new cancers, new strokes, new heart attacks, etc. I really don't want to put you through 12 months of chemotherapy heck and then have you die of an unnecessary stroke three years later. Now, this weight control data is still evolving, but it's reasonably clear. Excess weight gain is strongly associated with an increased risk of your first cancer and increased risk of the cancer coming back. And weight stability or back to baseline or even under a little a little bit is strongly correlated with less chance of recurrence. And based on the nurse's health study that came out, I'm telling my breast cancer patients to uh, take an aspirin a few times a week if they don't have ulcers or bleeding problems because it's, that's also associated with less chance of cancer coming back. But again, check with your regular doctor to make sure there's no contraindications. Now, the emphasis on weight gain and exercise is not the same as trying to blame somebody like, how could you gain all that weight? You want your cancer to come back? Um, that's not the point, but the point is recognizing that what you do, the actions you take, likely has some significant role in preventing recurrence of cancer as well as starting it in the first place. And I want most people to behave as if they were cured. 
which most people are these days, so that they don't they take care of themselves and don't have un, unnecessary other medical illnesses. Next, I'd like to talk about treatment summaries. You can ask your doctor to give you a list of the drugs you took and their doses. This is most important if you took adriamycin or doxorubicin, which does cause heart problems and for which there's a lifetime safe limit. This will also help you figure out your chance of early menopause or heart failure or estimate the risk of a blood disease such as leukemia, which is pretty low but still present. You'll also want to get the operative report, the pathology report, and the radiation treatment summary. These are fairly simple. Anybody with access to Google can Google cancer.net. Just Google cancer.net, and it'll take you right to the survivorship button. You can click on survivorship and come up with the cancer treatment summaries. And this will give you a form that you can print out, take to your doctor. You can fill in the part you can fill in with your name, address, all that stuff. And then he or she can write in the drugs and the doses that you took, what the goal of therapy was. You can take it to your radiation therapist and get the radiation part and the surgery part. That's really helpful when I'm seeing a new patient who's got, gotten treatment elsewhere so I can figure out what the best survivorship plan is for them. The third part I'm going to talk about is coordinating care, getting the right things done. And I can't stress enough, as Dr. Aurora said, to make a list of things you want to discuss with the doctor before you go in. If you have a list of things, you're going to get them discussed. If you don't have a list, you're at risk for the doctor coming in saying, how are you? And you'll say, fine, and then he or she will be in and out of the door in a few few minutes. If you say, I have five issues that are important to me, let's sit down and discuss them, your doctor will take the time to do that. Otherwise, it stands a big risk of not getting done just in the busyness of the day. Now, for most cancer patients, there are things that you should do that are recommended and things you shouldn't do. And for most common diseases, lung, breast, colorectal, etc., there are very good guidelines available at cancer.net for what you should have as a treatment summary and what you should have as a follow-up surveillance plan. And just using breast cancer as an example, it's strongly suggested that people do breast and chest wall exams looking for very treatable local recurrences. Do mammograms. In our study of patients who were in Blue Cross Blue Shield, we found about 20% of people had not gotten a mammogram two years after their initial diagnosis. Report any lumps or bumps, bone pain, or trouble breathing. See your gynecologist regularly. Make sure you get other stuff done, including cholesterol, bone density, colon cancer screening. Again, hoping that you're going to be a long-term survivor. And exercise, keep your weight stable, and eat lots of fruits and vegetables. That same sheet, the the treatment summary and surveillance plan will say don't do routine CAT scans, PET scans, bone scans because they really don't improve your chance of being cured. Don't do routine blood tests except for your cholesterol. Don't do routine serum markers like the CA2729 or the CEA. They're not recommended because they don't lead to better outcomes and they can tell you you have cancer when you don't. 
They also don't find curable recurrent cancer. Mammograms do. The data are not yet in on vitamin D tests, but I do get them on my breast cancer patients more for bone and health op- bone and heart health optimization after discussion. And now I'll turn this back to Carolyn and to Dr. Greenfield, who will talk about coordinating the care that is needed and some of the late effects of cancer treatment. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Smith, for an excellent presentation and really for highlighting the importance of really making that list of questions and actually um, and in terms of the treatment summary. So thank you so much. Our next speaker is Dr. Sheldon Greenfield. And Dr. Greenfield is co-director, Health Policy Research Institute, Donald Brenn, Professor of Medicine, University of California at Irvine. He also is co-editor of the Institute of Medicine Report on Survivorship. And I'm going to turn the program over to him, and he's going to talk about post-treatment side effects, late effects, follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor, the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team, and practical tips for making the most of your post-treatment healthcare visits. Dr. Greenfield. Thank you, Carolyn. And first, I want to say that I am much appreciative of the comments of uh, Niraj and Tom Smith, uh, and I actually will reinforce uh, a, a, some of them myself, and I certainly appreciate uh, their perspectives, which are both uh, broad and deep. Now, the topics I'm going to uh, cover uh, are, um, and I'm going to start with coordination between uh, oncology and primary care, uh, and then I'm going to talk about communication, then I'm going to talk a little bit about late effects, and finally some tips, uh, practical tips to sort of get along uh, uh, with, uh, with, with the survivorship uh, program. Now, first let me just make a comment. I'm a general internist, primary care doc, uh, and I was one of the reasons I was able to head up this uh, Institute of Medicine Committee on Survivorship was the sense that um, cancer survivorship uh, is not only about cancer, it's also about being a person with chronic disease. And therefore, it relates uh, that the, the person uh, w- with uh, other medical conditions, uh, heart failure, diabetes, arthritis, and so forth, uh, all of which need special kinds of, of care and attention. And one of those issues is who is the provider? What's the coordination between the oncologist and the primary care doctor? And um, the question is not should not be so much who is your who is the right person to provide all of your care. The question should be uh, is who uh, how is the care going to get done? There are different models. It could be that the oncologist does everything. It could be in many instances that the primary care do- doctor does almost everything. It could be a nurse practitioner who does everything. The issue should be turned to not who's the optimal provider, but how can things actually uh, get done. Now, several studies have helped out in this regard. It's been pointed out that um, sometimes if the patient has only an oncologist for the follow-up physician, uh, that certain things may get less attention, like like uh, heart failure or diabetes and so forth. And as Niraj mentioned, uh, depression could get less attention. Not that primary care docs uh, are, are totally on top of depression either, but it's very important that uh, some of these issues be taken up with the person who's best able to take care of them. On the other hand, the primary care docs may occasionally miss things or not link a person's symptoms or the way they feel to the uh, c- cancer itself or its treatment. So it's very important to have uh, to make sure that whatever 
uh, as Dr. Smith pointed out about the treatment plan, whatever the treatment plan is, it's very important to make sure that one or the other uh, does gets gets every gets everything done, and it doesn't really matter exactly who it is. Optimally, the two would work together and do some kind of handoff. But as Niraj pointed out, it's very important as much as possible for the patient, him or herself, to take as much charge as possible as possible, uh, and do as much of the coordinating coordinating as possible. Now, the second topic is communication related to that, which is, uh, and I think the others have emphasized this, which is um, when you go to see the provider, uh, have in mind what kinds of questions you would like to ask. And I want to point out also, particularly true of primary care, primary care docs have a relatively short period to visit with each patient, but what they can do is have recurrent repeat visits. So if you don't get everything done uh, at that visit or all your questions answered, just make another appointment and get them done at the second visit. Not everything has to be done uh, right away. Or, in some cases, you could make a special visit. Say, can I make a visit just to discuss uh, some infertility problems or some depression I've been having or some certain kinds of symptoms that I'm having or whatever? Uh, and that's totally okay to do. Um, and uh, the, certainly the primary care doc and even the oncologist will actually uh, respect that. The other thing, too, uh, since, since all of us, including ourselves as physicians, when we go to see another doctor, we're often sort of intimidated. As Niraj pointed out, we're worried that the doctor doesn't have enough time, uh, et cetera. One good thing to do is to have a partner, a friend, a loved one, whoever, uh, to come along with you to the visit, because often they'll hear things that you don't, uh, or uh, they will be able to ask questions that you don't feel exactly uh, right about uh, doing yourself. So uh, that's another potential uh, tip, which is whenever, don't, do not feel that the, uh, that the, that bringing another person into the visit is an intrusion on the doctor's space, because it is, it is not. Now let me go on to the third topic, which is late effects, which is, again, really tied to these other topics. Uh, the late effects of treatment uh, have gotten a lot of attention. As Niraj pointed out, they they, they deserve a lot of attention, and sometimes things slip away, especially over time. So there's two areas of, uh, of, of uh, addressing late effects of treatment. Uh, and uh, one is regular surveillance, regular visits. As Dr. Smith pointed out, certain things uh, should probably be done and certain things should probably not be done. Uh, and uh, he, he's, he was wonderful about kind of giving an outline of that, and you can get more information about that. Uh, but there's the, there's the regular surveillance uh, periodically uh, for late effects and for second cancers as well. But there's the second topic, which is actually a little bit more difficult, and that's why I wanted to make sure all of us start to pay attention to that, which is when people start to have symptoms or they have comp- various complaints or things happen, and I'll mention a few of them, fatigue, uh, cataract development, heart conditions, various aches and pains, shortness of breath, uh, fertility problems, these and others, Dr. Smith mentioned much of them, these are not, not, could, not, could be related to, to uh, some kind of the cancer treatment, but they're also the complaints of daily practice. People that have this condition or that condition or another condition or a third condition 
And so the, there's a lot of overlap between um, the, the, these issues uh, and the cancer. And that's why uh, the, the, the patient and his or her doctor, if it's a primary care doctor or an oncologist, have to have a good sense of when to work things up and pursue them further, when even to make a visit about them, and when not to. Niraj pointed out there's anxiety, so one of the things important things to do is decrease the anxiety. On the other hand, there's vigilance, and, and the, 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 the tricky and hard thing to do for all of us, uh, whatever we have, is to maintain a balance between doing just enough and not doing too much. For example, <clears throat> fatigue is common, but maybe comes from a thyroid problem that was related to uh, a late effect. Uh, heart disease, as, as, as Dr. Smith mentioned, uh, people on adriamycin or people that have had adriamycin or people that have radiation, uh, they could have late heart disease. Uh, I heard of a patient recently at our institution in whom the cardiologist didn't, pay, didn't make any link between the prior treatment uh, and a person, a young person, relatively young person, having some heart problems. And that link was absolutely critical. So uh, one of the things to do then is to look, look without getting too much anxiety, trying to keep that under control, is to look, uh, get as much information as possible about late side effects. As Dr. Smith pointed out, they're very rare, uh, and so they're, they, don't, they don't necessarily cause trouble by themselves. And most of them, if not all of them, can be managed. And when they, they can be managed by uh, good workups to check out what they are, and then treatment. But the main thing is not to ignore them and not to overreact to them. And that's a bit of a balancing act that all of us have to do for any condition that we have, but it's particularly important for cancer survivors. Now, finally, uh, tips. Uh, the main one, practical tips that get along with, uh, with visits. Uh, the main thing is what uh, uh, Niraj and Tom already said, which is be prepared, be as much prepared as possible. Uh, try to direct as much of the visit with your primary care doc or the oncologist as you possibly can, uh, and uh, without being obnoxious or too aggressive. There's no need for that either, uh, but make certain that they understand that uh, you have these concerns or these problems. If you have a pain somewhere that's been bothering you, that under ordinary circumstances, the physician would say, well, that's just some arthritis or something like that, uh, and it's bothersome to you, make sure that topic is brought up. Again, not necessarily on that visit, but on a near future visit. It may not have to be brought up that very day. Uh, secondly, as I mentioned, bring somebody along if you, if you can. Uh, third, um, check as much as possible on the issue that Dr. Smith brought up, which is the what we call periodicity. That's the time between surveillance visits, time between visits for monitoring. And get as much information as you can and at least bring up the fact, how often should I come in for this? How often should I come in for that? Uh, so that you have a sense of what the next two or three years of planning uh, is is going to be like uh, because the doctors, unlike the dentist's office, the, do, the doctor's offices aren't often always so good uh, about making sure that you get what you need exactly uh, when when you need it. And uh, along with that, related to the side, the late effect is try to have a sense of a of a threshold for getting a referral. Let's say you go to the primary care doc and you have a, a shortness of breath or a pain doesn't go away. It could possibly be related to something in your past. Uh, think, well, maybe it's time to, to sort of insist or ask for a, a referral. 
uh, or maybe even question a premature referral. In other words, get into the game about thinking about things related to, your, to, to yourself. Because as Dr. Smith pointed out, uh, the treatment summary is absolutely critical, but three or four or five years after that initial treatment, there are no treatment plans. So the patient has to, if you will, create one for him or herself with their doctor, at least in their minds, if not on paper. I want to make one other point as well, uh, which is uh, if when doctors disagree or when providers disagree, that's natural in medicine. Uh, we have to come to expect it. We would all like all of our providers and all the literature and all the Internet advice we get to be completely uniform and everybody agree, uh, but they don't always agree, and that's just one of those things. But the most important thing is for the, the patient and their family to see where those disagreements are to talk it over as much as possible with one of the providers and try to steer some course that uh, is reasonable for them uh, and uh, not let uh, disagreement amongst the providers, which is going to happen, uh, not let that throw people too much. So I'm going uh, to end there and uh, be happy to answer questions about anything that I have said. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Greenfield, for a very informative presentation and with lots of excellent tips for everybody. I know there will be questions for all of you during the Q&A. Before we have our questions, I do want to introduce Dr. Catherine Alfano. Uh, Dr. Alfano actually has been a co-facilitator with this whole program, helped to plan it, has been instrumental in the, in this, um, in the whole program's development. And she is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And she wants to say some words of welcome to all of you before we take questions, and she'll be also on during the Q&A as well. Dr. Alfano? Thank you, Carolyn. And I'd like to extend my welcome and thanks to our invited speakers and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It is truly an honor to be able to co-host this 8th Annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series. As Carolyn noted, this is the second of the four workshops in our 2010 series. And the National Cancer Institute represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and a co-funder of the program. As some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and the quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities such as this teleconference series that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. We are pleased that the number of participants in this series has continued to grow across the years. At the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors and their caregivers, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. We know that today's topic, communicating with your healthcare team after treatment, is extremely important because, as you have heard, effective communication can influence not only a survivor's satisfaction with care, but also his or her quality of life and medical outcomes after cancer. 
the National Cancer Institute convened a group of experts to publish a monograph in 2007 titled Patient-Centered Communication in Cancer Care, Promoting Healing and Reducing Suffering. This monograph, led by my colleague, Dr. Niraj Rora, who spoke earlier, points out that to achieve effective communication, three factors are vitally important, and you've been hearing about these. First, survivors and their families who are informed and empowered. Second, clinicians and healthcare teams who deliver patient-centered care. And third is a healthcare delivery system that's responsive to and supports patient-centered care. Much of the research that's gone on in this area has focused on how important it is to facilitate effective communication through building open and collaborative and trusting relationships between survivors and their healthcare teams. And I'd really like to thank our three outstanding speakers who have addressed this topic today. I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program back over to her for the question and answer session. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for just a wonderful, really um, welcome to everyone, and also for really setting a, a context for why this is so important, why we do this program year after year. And now we do have time for questions. We have lots of time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, uh, Mary to come up and uh, explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Elizabeth H. Yes. Um, would you please explain uh, how to get male doctors to treat women um, with respect and to pay attention to them. I've had a terrible time. I've had to educate my male doctors. I've had some very horrible treatment or been completely ignored and, it, and have them not caring, just be clinical and not care. Um, but my female doctors have been incredible. Uh, please address this problem. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for that excellent question. That's clearly an issue that you have been struggling with, and we certainly have um, lots of people on the call today who can help to address it. And I, I also do want to say, um, Jess, that sometimes, um, well, I, when I have Dr. Smith address this first, Dr. Smith, would you like to um, address this question? Well, I guess I should start by apologizing for all male doctors everywhere. Um, no, it's it's a it's a big issue trying to get. Oncologists in particular, many of whom are really schooled in the biomedical model where we're comfortable talking about numbers and diseases but may not be comfortable talking about um, psychosocial issues, um, difficult issues of survivorship, depression, fatigue, tiredness. It's hard to get doctors to do something which they are not comfortable with. I guess my best advice is if you're not getting the care that you need, don't feel badly about going to see another doctor. And search around for a patient-doctor duo that can work together with you. I know. Go ahead. This is Neeraj, and I totally agree with what Dr. Smith has to say, and uh, uh, I'm, uh, again, really sorry for your experience, Elizabeth, but uh, I want to say that this is uh, 
I don't think it's a very uh, uncommon thing for uh, just a male doctor with a female doctor. It's largely a personality issue also. Very often, as Dr. Smith said, uh, you may want to uh, identify another doctor with whom your uh, expectations and your preferences match because not always there is a match. And, you know, we've, I've had my own experiences of uh, very poor communication with uh, both male and female doctors that I've seen. And uh, very often uh, doctors, as Dr. Smith has said, are not trained to deliver uh, psychosocial care. And uh, empathy is one of the biggest uh, issues that oncologists especially struggle with. So uh, I just want to reassure you that uh, you're not alone in this. A lot of people have experiences. On the other hand, there are such great doctors with uh, different genders, uh, and people have had great experiences too. So um, I would just, again, encourage you to uh, maybe find another doctor and not feel bad about it, as Dr. Smith said. And Elizabeth, I actually would like to talk with you after the call as well. I know a lot of our support groups, this is a theme that people will talk about in terms of just communication issues, and um, so I'm happy to talk with you after the call, and, and um, I think um, we definitely want to be sure that you're, um, that, that you're getting the care that you need, and um, I think we all want to apologize that you've had um, uh, uh, some bad experiences that we want to try to hope after this call that we provide some tools and some equipment for everybody to kind of go back and um, think about getting second or third opinions um, so that you're um, getting the, the very best care that you, you need and that everyone on the call needs. So thank you for asking that first excellent question. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Mary W. Yes, I'm calling about the mention of test diagnostic testing. I have multiple myeloma and on a yearly basis it's recommended that I have a metastatic bone survey. Did you think that was appropriate or do you think there's a better test to see the progress of the myeloma? Okay, Mary, thank you for that um, excellent question. Now I am going to ask um, our speakers to address your question in a general way and then we would hope that you'll go back to your treating healthcare team with the specifics of information so they can tailor, um, you know, the, the care best for you. Um, but I am going to ask Dr. Smith if he can address that in a general way. Yes, myeloma is a good disease in many respects because there's typically something that's measurable and highly accurate for each patient, either a blood test measuring the amount of myeloma protein in the blood, hopefully it will stay low, or the other tests that are commonly done are a bone survey looking for new spots of myeloma in the bones that would show up on a bone x-ray before they fracture or do something bad. Each disease is different. So for instance, for, for colon cancer, we do recommend if the person's a fit candidate for further surgery and treatment in the future that we check a CEA blood test every three to six months for the first three years. But for, for lung cancer and for breast cancer, there aren't tests that are proven to be useful in that way. So it, you need to go to cancer.net and look up your specific type of cancer and look to see what's a proven surveillance plan and get, print out a treatment summary that then you can, can fill out with your doctor. There's not a one-size-fits-all test for every disease, 
like we would hope there would be in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Christine C. Yes, hi. Um, my biggest question that I deal with, I'm a wellness coordinator, and we have uh, a pretty extensive survivorship program in the facility that I work with here on the East Coast. And what in my intake interview, which I have with every patient before they go through our wellness and survivorship program, is do you know what type of breast cancer you have? And I can honestly say that eight out of ten times, most women don't. And so that being said, I think the biggest question is, and all these wonderful things that I have heard earlier today from all these wonderful physicians is, you know, to make sure that they have a list of questions. I'm finding that they don't, they don't know what they don't know. And so how do we collaborate um, with the healthcare team and letting educating our patients so that maybe we can let them leave their visit with, with at their time of treatment or maybe the time of diagnosis or maybe post-treatment with the history to take along with them to add to, you know, their history so they can bring it to their physician or at a later date educate themselves a little bit more and have the time and energy to look into what they really have. I think there's a lack of understanding and therefore they don't know how to treat themselves, take care of themselves, or maybe ask the right questions or know the right things to look for. Well, thank you, Christine. Excellent question and issue that you've raised here. Um, it's so hard, of course, for, uh, for survivors often to understand the language of cancer. And I wonder if um, Dr. Greenfield could address this and just speak to this. Sure. Well, it's a good question. And uh, in, in many respects, your kind of people that you see are lucky to have you uh, be interested in this very question. We, Our research group actually does research uh, not so much in cancer, a little bit in cancer, mostly in diabetes and other diseases, on patient coaches, getting patient coaches to sit down and review treatment summaries the, and treatment plans and to uh, make sure that uh, as much as possible the, the questions uh, are able to be formed. As you correctly pointed out, uh, a lot of people are, feel like they're in a fog. They don't even have the most basic information, even though most of the time, or a lot of the time, it's actually been imparted by the physician. They have actually said these things. We, we do audio tapes. Very often the physicians will have said these things, but the patients are just not in a position to remember. It is complicated. They're anxious when the information comes at them uh, and so forth. So... Having someone, an intermediary person like yourself uh, to, to be able to say, hold on a minute, as you enter the wellness program, uh, do you, are you aware of this? Are you aware of that? Do you know this about your, your cancer? Do you know that about your cancer? Uh, let's say from some checklist that you have off the Internet, that is a wonderful position uh, to be in for these, these very patients, and they're lucky to have you even ask the question. But... Uh, yeah, we just want to acknowledge the problem, uh, which is uh, all of us uh, go to doctors and uh, we rarely have even the most basic information, and the goal should be to try to get that basic information so that questions can be formulated. Excellent. Thank you. Any other uh, speakers want to add any comments here? Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Tom, please. Uh, this is Tom. If you go to it, it again, have a list. When patients go in, 
I may groan when I see somebody with a stenographic notepad and 20 pages of single-space questions, but if you look at cancer.net, on the first page, there's a little button that says newly diagnosed, first steps to take. You get told you have cancer and you don't really hear anything for a couple of weeks. So I'm pretty understanding of people not remembering what I told them. That's why here at the Massey Cancer Center, we have a written summary that we give to people. So I use carbonless copy paper and write down a person's name, their diagnosis, the stage their cancer is in, what the what the goal of treatment is, the, the um, options for treatment, the main side effects, and when to call the doctor if they're on treatment, and then sign it and give a copy to them. Um, and that really works having it written down. I know at least there's some written record that I've told them what their diagnosis is. But if your doctor's not a writer-downer, then you can go in with this newly diagnosed first steps to take book, and it will give you the questions you ask. What what do I have? What can be done for it? What's a specific diagnosis so I can look it up? How can I get better information? Um, how can I manage the emotional and social effects of the cancer? Um, so, again, go in with a list of questions that the person, that you that you want the doctor to answer. Thanks. Thank you. And Raj, do you want to add? I just want to say, in general, I think uh, while it's great for us to ask uh, patients and uh, survivors to take questions and uh, go there, as Christine saying, it's not. And I said in my remarks, we always don't know what uh, questions to ask. So I think one of the jobs of healthcare professionals also needs to be, in addition to answering the questions that they see on the patient's list, is to also actively think what else is there that I should be telling them that was not, that they did not ask me. So it, it's a two-way street. Uh, as patients, much as I uh, advocate uh, for patients to be active communicators, uh, the uh, healthcare professionals also then need to do their part in uh, educating them about things that they were not that they don't know to ask them about. Excellent point. Thank you. And, and um, Catherine, did you want to add anything as well? Well, I just want to echo the previous comments about the importance of treatment summaries and, and sitting down with someone, you know, whether it's a patient navigator or a patient coach or maybe, you know, whoever it is that's part of your treatment team that can help explain your treatment summary to you um, so that you understand exactly what you had and or have and what treatments you had and what you need to be looking out for. It's a very important thing to be empowered, an empowered survivor. And we definitely are all encouraging you to ask again and again and again because it takes a lot of hearing um, to get that information. So don't think that just because you asked once that you have to have those answers. You can ask again and again and from different people. Excellent. Thank you. Our next, uh, our next question. Our next question comes from, comes from Francesca A. Hello. Um, thank you so much for putting this program together. I have a question. I, I realize that more major cancer centers are beginning to have survivorship programs as well as the survivorship department. I'm curious to find out what would a patient expect if they advocate for themselves to try to get an appointment in a survivorship program. Mainly I'm looking for long-term side effects, like when we're talking about chemo brain, you know, neuropathies, and we've already tried all the medical avenues. 
we haven't found success. Would a survivorship program in a major institution, would that be helpful as well? Excellent. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. Uh, Dr. Aurora, would you like to address that question? I think uh, I would uh, pass it on to Catherine to answer this because her office does most of the research in this area. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, unfortunately, the answer is uh, I'm not sure because um, I think that the way that survivorship um, clinics and survivorship programs are being implemented across the country uh, is very individualized to that particular uh, institution and the strengths that they have there. So, for example, sometimes they're just in breast cancer or sometimes they're just for people who are five years post-treatment or sometimes, yeah, I mean, it just depends. On the other hand, I will say that I think globally uh, everybody uh, who is putting together a survivorship program is concerned about surveillance you know, of the, the screening that you need to undergo uh, after your treatment is over to look out for recurrences or second cancers. Um, they're concerned about long-term and late effects of cancer and treatment. Uh, they're concerned, and to some extent they're concerned about um, all of the different ways that cancer could have affected you. So I hope that we're moving toward a model nationwide where we're, we're treating what we call the whole patient, you know, all of the emotional, social, economic things that happen to you, and also your caregivers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next question. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Yes, hello everybody. Thank you for this wonderful seminar. Um, I am a registered nurse, psychiatric nurse, and a licensed social worker, but I am a three-and-a-half-year breast cancer survivor, stage 2B, and HER2 positive, ER, and progesterone negative. My question, I have two questions. The first question I have is um, the Herceptin that's been given. Uh, there has been a test now, and the New York Times was talking about this recently, that a lot of people did not need Herceptin, the year treatment, because they were never heard too positive, and they were on the borderline. That's was a lab that's, that tested this. My question is, some labs can be different than other labs um, you can go to, and I really like second-guessing a lot of times about the labs that I'm wondering if this really going to be national, one lab, just to test for Herceptin. And I also like to know about the CEA, I, you were talking before, and the CA 2729, because my doctor wants me to go every three months I'm sorry, every four months to get tested for both. Well, thank you. Excellent thank question, you. Stephanie, and thank you so much for your wonderful remarks and, que and questions. Dr. Smith, would you address this question, these questions? Sure. The first is about HER2 testing. Lee Newcomer from United Health looked at all their patients who were getting Herceptin and found that about 14% of them were HER2 negative. That is the uh, expensive antibody called Herceptin, which does cause heart failure, about 3% of people um, was being used when it would, would not benefit them at all. Um, those people were clearly negative, so they shouldn't have gotten it. That's the only data out there on how frequently that happens. There is some concern about um, quality control testing for the the different types of tests that are used to see if a cancer is HER2 positive or HER2 negative. My best advice is to make sure it's done at an accredited lab, which essentially all of them are now. The test itself is not all that difficult, and I think there's now a national directive that if it's, you know, it's graded 0, 1 plus, 2 plus, or 3 plus on the first test, and if it's 3 plus, then 
those those persons will almost always benefit from Herceptin. If it's in between, then those automatically get sent for um, a separate test with fluorescent in situ hybridization or FISH. And I know the details will bore some people. But basically, just make sure that if you're getting Herceptin that it's positive. Uh, make sure that the, the cancer is HER2 positive and just ask for a copy of, of the test. And if you have any questions, um, take it to someone else. It, it never, ever, ever hurts to get a second opinion about something as serious as cancer. The other question about the CEA and the CA2729 or 15.3 blood tests. They are really not useful at detecting curable recurrences. The recurrences that make the most sense to catch are those that are new breast cancers or really limited breast cancers on the chest wall, small areas. Those won't make enough of the protein CEA to be detected by the blood test. So that the test will miss at least 50% of people with known cancer and will tell you falsely that you have cancer 3 to 5% of the time. So both the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network recommend against doing the test because they're misleading and not helpful in detecting curable recurrences. I think you can expect to see more uh, uh, from the American Society of Clinical Oncology about that in the, in the coming months. Thank you very much. I, I want to thank all of our speakers, really an outstanding uh, team of speakers today, experts in this area, um, who really shared with you their experiences, um, Dr. Aurora, his personal experience um, and his, also his expertise and in, in his research, and Dr. Greenfield and Dr. Smith just, uh, and Dr. Alfana, really just bringing so much to this program today. I want to thank all of you who queued up and asked such really wonderful questions that really enhanced our program today, and all of you who have been listening as well. I do want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour education program and that as we plan this program, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. So with that in mind, I do want to really remind all of you that although this program will soon come to an end in terms of this one hour, that the services and the programs that are available to you that you've heard about, all the collaborating partners, all the resources, those are available to you endlessly, and they are here for you every day as you need them. Um, I do want to remind all of you also to really, if you haven't taken a look at the Facing Forward series, to be sure you get a hold of that. It's a wonderful, wonderful series for survivors. You can access it by calling 1-800, the number for cancer. So just a wonderful resource. You have that in your materials. I also want to remind all of you that if you are having some issues around just questions about, just questions of how to talk with your doctor, how to deal with, um, you know, issues in your, in your family, in your own survivorship experience, do take advantage of the free services at Cancer Care. Just call 1-800-813-HOPE. And please also take advantage of all the other collaborating organizations and all of their free services as well. We're all here to help you. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want anyone to feel that you're alone. 
in coping as survivors. I want you to now feel that you're part of a community of support, and we are here to help you throughout your survivorship experience. I want to thank you all for participating, and I want to remind you that there is another part three actually coming up of this series on June 22nd, Survivorship and Workplace Transitions. So we want you to stay tuned. And there's part four on July 13th, Survivors to Communicating with and Among Family, Friends, and Loved Ones. So there's two more programs to go, and we hope you'll, you'll tune in. Thank you so much, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.